Hello and welcome to this week's episode, episode 28 of the Conversation Podcast with me, your host, best-selling author, Nadine Matheson. So, how are we all? I hope that you're all enjoying the beginning of your week. I am currently in that blissful little period of time where I have absolutely nothing to do. And I mean nothing. My last book, not my last book, my latest book, my latest book? I'm not even sure. My work in progress is currently with, actually it's not even a work in progress because it's basically done. Whatever. My book is currently with my editor. Um, I'm just waiting for that to come back to me. I'm not starting book four in the Henley series yet. I just finished working on, let's say, the opening of a secret little project that I've got going on. So I currently have nothing to do. Absolutely nothing. And I am loving it. Loving it. Last week, I was um, teaching the baby lawyers, as I like to call them. And my group was absolutely fantastic. So to my baby lawyers out there, um, who I taught advocacy and communication skills last week. Hi, I hope you are all well. But I'm enjoying the quiet. And I think sometimes we don't give ourselves time to enjoy the quietness and just be. So my plan is to catch up on all my comic book reading because I have loads, loads, loads. Um, when you have a subscription <laughs> to Forbidden Planet, the comics keep coming even though you don't have a chance to read them. But that's what I plan to do for the next couple of weeks. I'm just going to read, indulge myself in the things that I like to do. I've got a couple of festivals to go to. So I will talk about those next week. And yeah, that's it. So moving on to this week's episode of The Conversation Podcast. In episode 28, I'm in conversation with crime author Patricia Marquez. And in today's episode... We talk about what she thought being a published author would look like before she became published, how writing Naruto and X-Men fan fiction developed her own writing, and the stories we tell ourselves when we need to look after our mental health. Now, as always, sit back, we'll go for a walk, and enjoy the conversation. Patricia Marquez, welcome to the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) So, my first question to you is... Before you became a published author with mm-hmm. your first novel, The Colours of Death, what did you think being a published author would look like? <laughs> Sorry. I laugh because um, definitely not this. Um, I think I knew I knew it it wouldn't be what we always dream it would be like. You know, you have that really romanticised version of you typing away, your dog curled at your feet as you went. You know, that kind of image of you as a writer. I had this, I think, a similar version of publishing. I didn't think I was going to have to network as much as I, I do. And I'm not even someone who networks a lot compared to a lot of authors. Like, I do the I, I do the bare minimum because I'm so bad at it. Um so there's a lot of that I didn't expect. I never envisioned all of the public speaking, um, all of those things that you, I just, it just never occurred to me. So I just thought it'd be, yay, getting the book written off to my editor. The editor edits, it comes back to me and then it's published. And then maybe we do some book signings and then that's it. <laughs> did, that you have, <laughs> did you have a vision of what your first book signing would look like? 
you know what? I didn't, but I always had a real dream of, and I'm so jealous of Adam Simcox for this. I had a, <laughs> I had a dream of being um, of being at one of the comic cons and being oh, on yeah. some of the panels and um, and having signings there because I thought that'd be really cool because. Obviously, because my genre straddles, you know, the sci-fi stuff a little bit, I thought I could get away with it. So I did have a dream of that. So I was like, oh, just hey, just talking and saying hello. <laughs> You're so realistic. <laughs> honestly, yes, so realistic, of course. Um, but no, and the reality of it was, you know, you by yourself with a stack of books. Actually, it was during COVID as well. So I think it during COVID. I think it was during COVID. Anyway, I, the reality was my first signing of books was in a bookshop by myself. It was Goldsboro. I'd broken my left <laughs> my left arm, so I had it in the car. Oh, my God. And I didn't realise how awkward it would be because you don't really think about the fact that you hold it down. You hold one side of the book down with your hand and you have to sign with the other. That was so awkward. The poor... Um, I think the, um, one of the shop assistants was like, do you want me to hold it open for you? And I'm like, that's even more awkward. Please don't. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was still amazing, though. Just definitely not what I pictured in my head, but still really cool and surreal. But, yeah, that was the first book signing. So to answer your question, no, publishing is nothing like I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> nothing at all. Nothing at all. So tell us about your publishing journey. We've already established it's not what you thought it would be. And also just to go back a bit for context, Patricia mentioned um, Adam Sincox, who wrote a book called A Generation Killer. And he appeared at one of the comic cons on a panel. And if you're, I know, we're we're both very jealous of that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back. Let's go back to your publishing journey. No, but before we go there, because a little bit about you, because I do my research, a little bit about you. And I know this anyway, because you've told yeah. me. But you're half you're half Angolan and yeah. half Portuguese, yeah. born in Portugal, mm-hmm. and you came to the UK when you was eight years mm-hmm. old. When did you know that you wanted to be a writer? And was there anything in your childhood that made you think this is what I would want to do when I'm older? Um, funnily enough. I actually wanted to be a fashion designer. That's what I wanted to be originally. Um, and then, because the thing was, when I when I came over here, I didn't speak a word of English. So although, you know, your kids, you kind of find a way to just um, communicate with each other. And, you know, ultimately, you just want to play. And you guys figure out your own secret language until you do pick up the language. Um, but I wasn't a big reader before then. Um It wasn't until I got over here and I was reading to learn English and then, you know, reading because I preferred books over people um, that I really started to get into reading at all. And then what happened was um, I remember, I think, was I year six? Year six? Maybe year six going into year seven? I'm not sure. Um, My mum basically um, had enough of me uh, finishing books too quickly because I was reading them the second I got them and it was the point horror ones you know at the time they were like 2.99 or three yeah. and a half. Oh, good times um they were like 2.99 a pop or something like that and she was just like you're allowed two books a week and that's it and I was like 
Wow. And bless her, she started keeping a list. She started keeping a list of the books and sometimes she'd stop by WH Smith herself and buy me new ones. It was so cute. So she always kept a list of what I already had. And um, I was reading them too quickly and then I had nothing else to read. And so I kind of just thought, oh, I'll, I'll write stories for me to read then until I can get my next book. And that's how I kind of started writing. I never thought, oh, I want to write a book. I just wanted to read something because I wanted to read something. <laughs> so that's if, how it kind of started off. And if you're year six and seven, so you're 10 and 11, aren't you? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I still have I still have them. They were written on, um, you know, the exercise books that you get at school. So I'd get my English teacher would would give me some sometimes. And I still remember one of them is yellow and I've got it upstairs somewhere buried because I never want to find it because um, every time I do find it, I look at it and I just cringe. Why would you cringe? You were were a 10 or 11 year old writing stories. I know. And I'm being very judgmental of a 10 and 11 year old, but you are (laughs) so cringe. So cringe. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of how I started out um, writing. So I didn't I didn't want to be a writer. And then what happened was when I got to college, I was still very much planning on doing uh, on following the fashion design route. Um, but the problem is, I signed up for a textiles class because I needed. To, I thought I need that knowledge to you know to be able to yeah. be a fashion designer and stuff. Um, but the class was full, and my name was first on the waiting list. So I was like okay, you know, the odds of me getting in are very high, but then nobody called me. And I was like, oh, well, I was really annoyed. And then I remember halfway through my term, I think, no, the, the was it the end of term one? I think it was the end of term one. My tutor goes to me, how come you're not attending your classes? And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh, then we need your like, textile classes. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, you haven't been attending textile. And I was like, nobody told me I got in. I was on the waiting list. So it was an, an administrative error. Uh, and then she's like, well, do you want to join? And I was like, I've just missed the whole term of coursework. What do you think? No. And so I kind <laughs> of, I was like, and, but by then I kind of, during that time I was thinking, you know, I do enjoy writing more than, it's not that I enjoyed it more, but I, that's where the bulk of my time went. I was spending more mm. time writing than I was sketching. So I was like, clearly, and if I'm willing to let it go, Although this is me thinking of it in hindsight as a teenager, I just probably didn't want to be bothered. But and then I thought, but so I've got my writing. Let's be honest. That's what I was thinking as a teenager. Um, But and I was like, I've got my writing. So I'll just stick to that. And then I kind it kind of just became the thing. And I was just like, I'll go with this because I enjoy doing it anyway. So, yeah. But even then, I think I wasn't thinking too much about publishing. I was thinking, what were you thinking? I don't know. I was I think I was thinking this is what I enjoy doing. Uh, I knew I needed to go to uni because, you know, because of my background. I know that's one of the things my mom really wanted for me. And I was like, okay, cool. And no one had been in my family yet. So I was like, but if I'm going to go, I'm going to do something that I really want to do. And I'm not going to be doing anything like sensible, quote unquote. Uh, (laughs) And when we we say sensible, we mean the law and accountancy and yeah doctor's degree whatever it is that if you're from an African background your parents would be proud to to say to (laughs) someone else even she would have even been happy with journalism but no I did creative writing um but hey I'm gonna stop you just right there because I'm in I'm always interested in our families and Mm -hmm. you know because they have so much to do with who we are Mm -hmm. as people 
So when you, you know, and as you said, what they wanted for you, what your mum wanted for you was to go to university, but to do something sensible. So when you did say to her, I'm doing creative writing, what was her reaction to that? Well, she wasn't too unhappy because at the start, um, what I did was I actually did, it was, um, oh my God, what did we used to call them? I think they're called something different now, but when you do a combined degree. Yeah. So to appease her, I was going to do the creative writing with Spanish. So I actually started doing the Spanish. Um, but then I realized that in my third year, I'd have to go abroad to do that, which I don't know, this is how you see the kind of person that I am. At the time, to me, that was just like, ugh. And I was like, oh, you know, instead of being like, yes, exciting, new country. You think, yeah. it had, you think it had something to do with the fact that you're from Portugal? And you're like, well, why am I going to Spain? It's next door. I don't if know. If they said you were going to Colombia, you think that would have incited you more? I don't, I don't even know. I think it's because I really enjoyed it when I was doing it in college. I had a lot mm. of fun, loved my classmates, loved everything about it. But I feel like it lost a lot of its fun in uni um, because obviously they cracked down on the grammar all of that stuff yeah. it has a more linguistic element and I was just like oh my god this is a pain in the ass which, which <laughs> now as a, like the age that I'm in now I'm like that was fascinating like what was wrong with you what why would you not but yeah and then I also realized I wouldn't get to graduate with my creative writing class and that was my favorite thing and I really wanted to do that so then I dropped the Spanish um needless to say she wasn't very impressed with that. <laughs> but I think in her head, she was like, you know, she's already doing the, the thing that I asked her. She's already going to uni, so I'll kind of Back be off. happy with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So, um, and, you know, that was good. Like, I, I I was studying and I was I had part-time jobs. Like, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like a crazy, I wasn't one of those teenagers that was like a pain in, in your ass. I literally just came home and hold myself up in my room with my books, like, what else could you ask for? Like, just I'm not giving you any headaches, um, you know, other than staying up super late reading. I had I wasn't giving you any headaches. So um, I think she just kind of let it go. But I did notice that, she, you know, when there were conversations happening, because I did have I did have a, a journalism module. I know that a couple of times she would use that as an excuse to say journalism instead of creative writing. Now, I don't know how much of that was her just not, exactly knowing how to explain creative writing to people and just saying, uh, we'll just say journalism. And, it's, a, you know, it's a hard thing to explain. And especially like creative writing is, wasn't as, I mean, it was becoming more popular, but it mm. wasn't as I think prevalent as it is now. So we talk about creative writing. Most people know what creative writing is or they know kind of what it's about. Uh, this was like, God, how many years ago now? I mean, I'm 34. This was decades ago. So it wasn't as, you know, I guess people didn't really know what it was. They just knew that it was about writing and maybe there was poetry in there. Yeah, I think also as well, when it comes to creative writing courses, whether it's a degree or just a short course or a master's, for like your family, your parents, they need to know, you know, they know if you do a law degree, then it's leading to a profession. You're going to be a lawyer. Whether you're a barrister or solicitor, you're going to be something. If you're doing medicine, you know you're going to be a doctor. Accountancy, yeah. you're going to be an accountant or something working in investment banking. There's a clear path. They see where it goes. Path, yeah. Yeah. Whereas creative writing is like, well, 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 what are you doing? So you've written, <laughs> you've written something, and and then what? I remember my mum asked saying that to me. When I did yeah. my creative writing masters. Yeah. Well, what 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 do you do with it? 
to be fair, you already had a law degree. So, you know. I know, but still. You, it wasn't a, you shouldn't have had so much worry about, okay, and then what? Well, well, but it's, like, I mean, it's, it's a valid, it's a valid question. Um, yeah, I did admin. That's what I did. And that's most people. But because you're right, there isn't a career, a clear career path there. I mean, even if you look on the course pages, um, obviously, because I work at university now um, in career service. So I have to look at these things for when we're looking at potential jobs and uh, career paths for our students. And you go on, prospe- on what is pros- pros- prospects? Prospectus? No, prospects. I think that's the website. Um, it's still mm. the same one that we used. And um, oh my god, is it? Oh, is that website still going? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, um much more informative uh, now. It's, it's quite good. It is still very good. Um, so you know, especially for research purposes, when you're writing your books, it's good to see what you can <laughs> do with certain degrees. Um, but yeah, it goes on there, and it's things like you know, they'll say English teacher or working in media or communications and things like that or copywriter and but even then I think the the actual creative part of the creative writing kind of still gets left aside a little bit because Mm. I I suppose they're looking at what you'd call steady work and at the time there wasn't as much focus on freelancing and things like that I mean you, you knew you could be done but it wasn't something that you'd really encourage the students to learn about Whereas I know that's something that's changed recently. I know that's certainly something that I've worked to change while working at University of Greenwich, which is, you know, anyone doing any kind of a creative degree needs to get some some education around freelancing. Absolutely. Mm. Because you might not get a job right away. Well, you probably won't. So what did you do as soon as you graduated? Because I want to know when, I want to know when the, that writing, that, bug that urge to be published when that kicked in so you've graduated from uni with your creative I graduated from uni and I'm going to be honest with you halfway through uni apart from the projects that I was doing for my modules I sank I was swallowed up by the world of fan fiction badly I was just in there I was deep in there nothing was going to get me out (laughs) That's that's what happened but although they weren't my characters it was still probably one of the best things that I ever did in terms of developing my writing style, uh, understanding what I was trying to convey when I was writing, um, figuring out what I really liked about writing. So I know I'm absolutely crazy about atmosphere. I love a good atmosphere on a page. So I'm, mm. I get kind of obsessed with it. And um, so, so there was like loads of tricks that I kind of learned just through the sheer practice. And also you get feedback Um from people sometimes not always very nice um some people just wonder where's the next update and I'm like I'm not a machine and you're getting this for free leave me alone what was your chosen genre when you were uh, writing fan fiction it was always what were you from, a fan of it was uh I was writing for, for the Naruto fandom that was the first one although funnily enough the other day I realized I thought my first ever fandom was Naruto and then I realized actually no I'd accidentally a couple years before that stumbled across some X-Men fan fiction <laughs> and I didn't realize that that's what it was because I didn't know what fan fiction was I just thought oh I'm reading a story about X-Men and um turns out that that was actually the first fanfic I ever read and I think it was I think it was about I think it was about Rogue and Wolverine I think that's what it was uh so that was that. 
And then when I started writing, I was writing either romance or some of them were kind of psychological kind of things because there was one manga that was kind of so fun. It's like fantasy mafia. Loved it. Fantastic. Like, <laughs> I was to love about it. And that one you got to uh, like, and considering the manga was absolutely silly and just really fun, it was really nice to explore how dark it could be. Uh, so it was just doing that. So some psychological numbers, a few action bits, a couple of murders. It's so fun. Loads of ninjas flying about. Like, what's not to love? What's not to love? <laughs> what, did, what did you learn about yourself, though, when you were indulging in this fan fiction world? What did you learn about yourself? And then what did it show you a possible path in terms of writing I, for you? I think the biggest thing was I learned that I could absolutely finish a story because before, because, you know, they're short stories, but before then I'd never actually written a long piece of work and completed it. And I actually, one of my fan fictions, and you're going to gasp at this, one of the, the one, the first one that I ever started that was, as we called it, a long chapter fic. Oh, look at me with my terminology in the fanfic world. Um, <laughs> so a long chapter fic, it, and I was writing it kind of like a ser- like a serial, um, like ser- like it was serialized, basically. I was updating yeah. every, every week. And sometimes if I missed one, then I'd update two chapters in a week. Or if I was particularly creative that week, I'd write three. I mean, oh, where's that stamina gone? Um, but basically I was doing all of that. And I, you know, I managed to finish it. And at the end of it, you know, it was a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It had the plot, although it probably only the plot only developed about, I think, in the middle, what should have been the middle of the novel, or if it had been a novel, but it wasn't, obviously. So that's how you know that my storytelling skills were really bad, but you could see them start to take shape. And um, it ended up about, I think it was over 100,000 words. I think it was 120,000 words of, of story. Did and your then, mother know this was going on? Oh, yeah. She, she Well, she didn't know what I was doing. She knew that I wrote. She didn't know what I was writing. She just, oh, she's writing again. Um, but, you know, I had a job, so she couldn't really complain. <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, I had my little first admin job for this, like, training and development company in Finchley. Um, but in, this is what I was doing in my, in my spare time. I would just, I would just write. But it's funny because looking back on it, I saw myself developing I can see now looking back writing that whole thing me developing as a writer just through that one work alone because Mm. I figured out how things where things went right um where the pacing was off and I was starting to recognize those things in my own work it's easier for you because you're just so used to reading books you you don't realize how much you've picked up and how many things you instinctively understand and you can sort of see I think there's a point where you can just see where my writing just changes and matures. And then the plot starts to get really tight. Uh, well, tight, for, if I was to read it now, it's just not tight at all. But for what, for where it was, that's what, that's what it was. Um, so it, that one piece of work, funnily enough, now that we're talking about it, I've never thought about it. But that's when a, I realized, yes, I can write a book. I can finish it. And I can, I mean, if I can write a hundred thousand words of fanfic, I can write my own book. And that's when I kind of then started to see if I could break out of the break out of that cycle. Because the thing is, once you've been writing fanfic for a while, while it's good because you're practicing your writing skills on the daily, you're using someone else's character. So you kind of develop this fear of writing your own because everything that you write that's original 
kind of feels really fake, um, which was really, it was a really odd space. And I know that there are other people, other writers that I know who previously wrote fanfic, they had the same struggle when they made the transition. How do you get over that emotionally? Because you have to tell yourself, I'm not just writing to carry on someone else's story. I'm now writing for myself. And that can mess with you mentally if you've just been in this bubble, yeah. just, ex- just expanding on someone else's world. So how did uh, you deal with that emotionally? Um, I just I just kept trying. Like, I, I hated it, but every time I, I just... I never seemed to get past, like, the 25K mark with something new. Mm. But the more you try, then the more you're able to kind of lose that feeling because you're just starting again you you kind of just get frustrated and it's always like that shiny new idea syndrome it's like oh I'm halfway through this oh well that would be better maybe if I do that that will work and this one won't so although that was really bad that starting and stopping and ditching of projects and starting something else I think that helped me kind of just kind of leave the fear of not having something authentic behind because then now it's now I'm just frustrated about the fact that I can't get past the halfway mark. Like you don't even care about the fact that they're your own characters anymore. And you're not really thinking about your insecurities about that. You're just like, I need to get something on the page and I need to finish something. So that was like a lot of years of that. A lot of nanoremos that went, came and went where you just, or, or nanoremos, I know we all pronounce it differently. Um, <laughs> so a lot of those, a lot of those that, that, that was actually quite a useful tool to kind of get going working on my own stuff, yeah. even if it wasn't really that great. I, you know, I'd at least meet the 50K. Is it 50K? It is 50K. Yeah, 50,000 words. Yeah. I'd at least meet that, even though what I had was often just a shambles. But I had something, but it was never something that I could then, or maybe not something that I couldn't work on, just something that I just didn't. I was like, okay, that's rubbish. So move on to the next one. So there's this a graveyard of ideas somewhere on my desk. Do you think you're good at being able to recognise within yourself when something's not working and then doing something about it? I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself at all, I think. Not anymore, because a lot of the things where, for instance, with book one, I was like, this is rubbish. When we say like, book one for clarification, oh, we sorry. mean the colours of, yeah, yeah, the colors of I death. Say, the colours of death. <laughs> when, when I started that, I was like, this is rubbish. So clearly my idea of what's decent and can be turned into something good is maybe not to be trusted. So now I have to always second guess myself. Like, am I just struggling, you know, and this isn't, you know, it's not going smoothly, but just because it's not going smoothly doesn't mean it's rubbish. It's probably something Mm. that you can then fix into something that's good. Um, I think though that it's important to remain self-critical and have that because I think, eventually that is what keeps the work from actually being rubbish. Do you think you're less self-critical when you're writing fan fiction because it is someone else's world? Mm, before, yes. Now, no. I'm just as critical with any fanfic that I that I would write now than I am with... with Because it's like, I feel like this is like... I'm like, no, this is my reputation on the line. If this is rubbish. People remember me as a rubbish writer. I can't have this on my name. So I'm I'm now just as just as bad. I'm I mean I'm a lot more I'd say I don't want to say careless with it. I'm a lot less I'm stricter I'm less strict with it, I guess. If something's not going that well but I've got a deadline coming up for it then cuz I'll participate in challenges, well, 
haven't for a while now, but I, I would participate in challenges and, you know, the deadline's tomorrow and I still have 10K to go. I'll be like, you know what? It is what it is. I'm going to get down what I can. And then I'll just tidy it to the best that I can. And I'll just do a slapdash job and I'll be Are you able, able to do that. Yeah. Are you able to carry that through to your own writing now? Not quite. I'm trying, but it's a struggle. It's a struggle because I feel like there's, there's great things at stake. Um, you know, I have a publishing contract, you know, it has to be something that my publisher is willing to publish. And I'm always worried, oh my God, what if they think that this is just nonsense? And then they send me back mm. to just, they're like, no, this idea won't work. So there's always like that worry. I feel like the stakes are higher. So I worry more because I'm always scared that I'll be, this is the point where they'll be like, no, denied. This is not good enough. Or, you know, I don't know where your brain was when you, when you thought this would work. Don't you ever get frustrated um, when, you know, you've created your story, hmm. you know, you have your world, whatever your story is, and you're happy with it. But then someone else is gatekeeping to say, we don't think this is going to work. Isn't there a frustration behind that? Because you're thinking, well, why are you trying to dictate how I should write and the story I should tell? To be fair, that hasn't really happened to me yet. Knock on hmm. wood, this could be the one where it does um and to be honest I think with this one if someone was to come back to me and say I'm not entirely happy with this I wouldn't really take it to heart I mean of course it's going to hurt it's, it's just gonna yeah hurt regardless because nobody wants that but um because I'm struggling so much with the book that I'm currently working on I I totally understand I'll be like cool um and also I think what helps especially if it's coming from the editor is that you know, they don't just say things point blank. You get your feedback, you see the comments that they make along the way. And often that kind of helps you figure out actually where it should go. Um, it's almost like it's just prompting you to think from different angles. So I've never had, I think the only kind of thing that I had that was close to that was maybe with, I think, was it book one? I think it was with book one actually. Um, and I think my my editor then, I love the editor, uh, she came back to me and she there was a particular book, uh, a particular uh, relationship in the book that she's just like, I just don't find this believable, you know. And then I think she suggested a pregnancy. I was like, no, <laughs> I was like, don't want a pregnancy. I'm like, why? Um, and I don't know why I took that. So I was like, it's just pregnancy. But um, so then, but I was determined to have that relationship in the book. And because it was in my head, it's such a big part of everything else. I was like, it was a non-negotiable in my head. Um, I said I would take a look and see what I could do. And then if she still felt that that didn't work, we could go back to the drawing board and see what what could, because I really didn't want to let it go. Um, I don't know how I did it. I don't know what I, I, I tweak things. I don't know how I tweak things, but I tweak them. And then the next time she read it, she was like, you know what? And now it works. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I did, but obviously whatever I did made it work. So I'm happy. So that was the only time where I kind of, I don't want to call it, feeling precious about it but it's just I think there are things as a writer that you know that you know you want for your characters and that you know will make a difference and you're not willing to compromise on those and other things um I think if you have a good editor if you've got an, uh, an editor that really does enjoy your work and that likes working with you I don't think that will ever be a problem because they'll just kind of say their thoughts but also give you the space to actually work it out and make it work for them because they're also a reader, I suppose. So, but they're not the only reader that's going to be reading your book. 
Um, but I think if you've got a, a good editor that you've got a good relationship with, even if they do feel that way, it will never truly be a problem because they can't really force you. Um, so I think everything can be worked out. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to go back a bit. I'm going to go back to you. Okay. And your background. Okay. So, as you said, you're half, as we said, you're half Angolan, half Portuguese. Came here when you were eight years old. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a feeling of how do I fit in this new world? Oh man! And that's, that, yeah, yeah. That's such a that's such a loaded question in general. <laughs> just because, oh, that's a loaded question. Uh, in terms of moving to the UK, I mean, I was young. I just wanted to be able to communicate. That was number mm. one. Number two was that I noticed certain expectations I think that had more to do with me with my age and having more awareness as I as I grew up here obviously I was I was really young in Portugal so probably it's just that the things that I just didn't notice while I was there because I was so young I didn't pay attention to these things but um like when I moved here I was my mom didn't immediately come with didn't immediately come with me so because she was just still sorting things out in Portugal so yeah. I actually stayed with my aunties for like Actually, it wasn't that long. It felt like forever, but it wasn't that. And oh my god, that sounds awful. I love my aunties. Don't get me wrong, but it, <laughs> it just felt. It just felt like you know you miss your mom, so it's like you've been without them for a while. But I think I came in like September, so my mom only joined us in I think maybe January. I think it was January. That's not that long, but no, I said when you're a kid, any yeah, amount, any amount in, of time, a week feels like forever. In my head, it almost feels like I remember it is like a long year. It wasn't a long year. It really wasn't, but that's how it feels in my head. I moved here. I was too young and I hadn't, there were things that I hadn't noticed, but yeah, so I was staying with my aunties and my auntie Maria, right? She's like amazing with hair. Funnily enough, she's not the hairdresser in the family, but um, she's amazing with hair, cameras, everything, everything. She just loves it. And um, case in point, her son, Eric, has this, God, I've never seen a boy with so much hair on his head, honestly. Eric is just, anyway. And she just, creates masterpieces with his hair like it's incredible like the camera that she does on him like everything that anyway moving on the twist the da 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 all of that so she's always been really creative for that and I had really long hair at the time obviously with my heritage and you know and her skills she would she always wanted to just almost like I was a little dress up Barbie for her bless her she would just do my hair and all of these things and obviously she would do cameras on me she would do all of these things and you know I'm very white facing I'm very white facing. So people don't immediately assume that there is a heritage there or that I'm mixed of any kind. Yeah. So even then I still wasn't as aware as I am now and I um of how that was perceived. Um and it's funny because that stayed with me to the point where I'm overly conscious now. I'm very, very conscious of what's what's what I'm seen as and the judgments that are made and how I come across. Um, so the fitting in question is so, it's just so weird and loaded because it's just a very, it's a vastness of gray. It's a very yeah. gray world. Um, you know, sometimes it's pretty, sometimes it isn't, but, um, uh, but yeah, as a kid as I wasn't, I wasn't that as aware of that. I was definitely made aware of it when I reached secondary school. Cause you know, teenagers are dickheads. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> you can say it you can can say say it it. but yeah teenagers are not the nicest Uh, but sometimes you know they're up front 
so you learn things the hard way and um, you have to think on your feet and just adapt to situations. So um, I remember I was in a very mixed friendship group, which was fantastic. I love my group. They were amazing. Uh, very accepting of me. Um, very protective of me at times as well, which was really nice. And, and I have them. So we had a really cool group. Um, but yeah, I remember the boys in sixth form were awful about it. Like there were comments that were made and I was just like, About oh. you being mixed? Or the fact that they didn't know that you were mixed? They didn't know that I was mixed, so they assumed that I was white. So it was almost seen like I was a a wannabe or uh, like, so everything that feeds into imposter syndrome, basically. Right. um, Was there. Um, To white people, I was just white. So they didn't really um, have many thoughts on that. They just didn't really look at it. But definitely you would see it from... um, Black African, Black Caribbean, um, and I don't mean everyone, but definitely you know you know the type, the the stupid bullies who just have nothing better to do and don't really yeah. think their actions through. So you would hear a lot from them, and so I kind of just learned to just stay quiet and out of the way and just. Do you think that? Do you think that staying quiet, as you said, being invisible? Do you think that could have been one of? the motivating factors behind you becoming so immersed into this world of fan fiction oh god like I mean it definitely pushed me further away from people because you Mm. know people were just complicated and also (laughs) knowing myself I just couldn't be bothered like I don't have time (laughs) for this even at that age I was just like I don't have I mean part of me was running away from the problem and not understanding how to deal with it, not really having the tools to. But it wasn't a problem. It was just people, other people's, yeah, um, prejudices. If you want to just, yeah, it's it's that. such a, it's just such a bizarre, it's bizarre. But um, yeah, so part of it just was like cool. This, I mean, yeah, my books are way cooler than you anyway. Way more interesting. I can just have fun with them. I remember I used to get to school early. I would leave my house early to get to school early just so that I could have a solid 40 minutes before <laughs> tutoring so I could just sit there in silence reading my book. It was beautiful. I loved it. It was amazing. Best time of secondary school ever. It was fantastic. But you know, it wasn't the case in college. I didn't have I didn't have as much I didn't really have that in college. I didn't have that problem. Um mm. Or, or maybe I just didn't, I didn't worry about it as much. I don't know if it was confidence or if it was, um, I never completely forgot about it, about it. It was always there when I was planning just how I would look or just how I was interacting with people. My speech, absolutely my speech as well. I was very overly conscious of how I spoke, the slang that I used or that I didn't use more. I, I was always trying to scale it back. So it never seemed like I was trying to imitate anyone so that wouldn't have to be explaining situations and because nobody needs to know my family history. I don't need to explain myself every time. I don't want to constantly explain who you are or just, or have to justify why you mm. may say certain things or God, it sounds a bit perfect to say it, but you know, you even eat certain things. You don't yeah. want to have to explain your yeah. reasoning behind that. Yeah. Uh, and it just, yeah. So I just kind of left it. Imposter syndrome has always remained. Um, but as a writer, as um just as an individual you always have you always have that um is there there differences between dealing with imposter syndrome as an individual as you were talking as we're talking about your mixed race heritage and dealing with imposter syndrome as a writer and putting yourself out there in 
the world and saying, I'm Patricia Marquez. This is the book I wrote. This is who I am. Yeah, I, I think so. I think one is way more complicated and I think just rooted in how we move through society and within our families and within our friendship groups. Although I'm lucky to have the like the most amazing friend, friendship groups. So I've, I've never had to worry with, with the people mm. that I surround myself with. With writing, it's more, it's a confidence in skill. And the skill is always something that you can always improve on, you know, practice, practice really does make perfect. Sometimes, you know, you feel like your third book should be going a lot easier than it, you know, your first one, but you find that it's just the same, but it's fine. Uh, you at least know that you can still deliver even if it's difficult. So you do gain more confidence and, you know, there's people who have spent money on you as a writer. They've bought your book. They've, you know, signed contracts. So you can't be doing all that badly. Um, even if you, you know, you tell yourself not to get too, not to let it go to your head. Uh, and just stay on your toes and do the best that you can. So I think those things kind of start to validate your skill, even though, you know, maybe you you were just as good or just a good, as, as good a writer without those things as well. But it certainly counts as validation and you definitely gain confidence from it. So imposter syndrome starts to fade a little bit. I mean, when there's things that like not in like the conversation we're having now, because it's one on one, it feels like, you know, it is just a conversation, really. But for instance, when you're up on panels and things, then you kind of have to persona it up. Well, I definitely do. And it's like, uh, you have to, you have to like, you know, um, because you're there to also, A, people, you want people to like you because if they don't like you, they're not going to buy your book. <laughs> but you also don't want to come across as fake. You know, you want to be as natural as you can possibly be while also, you know, doing what you need to do. And because I'm not a natural public speaker, it's not something that comes naturally to me. There's always like a kind of like, kind of like prep moment where you just have to kind of just look, you're just going to do it. You're going to get it over and done with. And then once it's done, it's going to be like, nothing happened. It's great. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, what? that's always, that's always my philosophy. Yeah, to just, think just, how I get, because sometimes you don't want to do something. And I've always told myself, and I remember doing this back at university when we had seminars and we had to do a presentation. Oh, I'm like, and I didn't want to, oh. I didn't want to do it. But I would just say to myself, look, it's an hour and you'll do it and it'll be done and you won't even think about it again. Yeah. So and just, it goes by so quickly. Once you're yeah, actually it, it there, goes it by. flies by. Yeah. So I completely agree. Yeah, it's it's the way that, <laughs> yeah, I love that we have exactly the same way of convincing ourselves to, <laughs> to do things. But, and then, you know, and nine times out of 10, you walk out happy that you did it. So it that kind of all always helps justify it for when you do it the next time. So, yeah. So when it comes to imposter syndrome in terms of career, not just that, but like other stuff that I do in my role, delivering presentations, speaking to employers and people, you know, important people from other sectors and stuff where I might not necessarily know entirely what I am talking about because I work with very, very different sectors. And, you know, you can't know every single one. Uh, you kind of just do as much as you can. You do as much research and prep as you can to help you feel more confident when you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. And that helps. Whereas I feel with the personal element, when it's you as an individual, um, you could argue that you've been prepping for it your whole life, I suppose. Every day is practice. But I think because society is always changing, their narrative and the focus um, and where, where things are kind of scrutinized always changes. 
it's a bit more complicated because you also have to move with the time. Some of it is good, though, because, like, for instance, I think um, there's a lot more tools for you to just learn how to navigate those things now, which is really yeah. helpful and healthy. That, and I don't think that was present, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um you kind of were just taught to suck up, like, what are you even talking about? Like, just, you know. Well, mental uh, health wasn't something you would even openly, you would never admit to it. I remember, no. like, being at work and, you know, going to court and it was a year and I was doing back, literally I was doing back-to-back-to-back trials. There wasn't, there wasn't a break. And I'm not someone who normally suffers with high blood pressure. <laughs> and I'd gone to the doctor and he's like, your blood pressure's, like, really high. And he goes, are you stressed? And at the time, I had other stuff going on. But the, it was the work aspect. And I'm like, yeah, I'm stressed. But he said, well, I can sign you off for stress for two, you know, for two weeks. I'm like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do that. So what yeah. I did instead was, I know, because you, it's this perception. Because at the time, yeah. it's the perception of you saying that you're being signed off with stress. It's kind of insinuating, not insinuating, but People will infer from that that you can't cope. There's some kind of weakness yes. around you and maybe you're not good enough for the job. And it wasn't something that anything to do with mental health was in the workplace or even families as well. That just wasn't something um, people would openly talk about. I mean, luckily, as I said, my family's never been the sort of people to like deny if there's a mental health issue. But I remember going back to work, instead of saying to them, yeah, the doctor signed me off for two weeks for stress. I said, I'll, I said, I will take an, a week's annual leave. Yeah. Which and look, not the same thing. Just, it's not the same thing. And looking back uh-huh. at it now, like fast forward to today, I was like, what on earth was I doing? It's like, yeah. I needed a break, yeah. but I'd sacrifice manual leave as a, yeah. instead of saying, let me, the doctor sign me off for two weeks. So, you know, that was the world we were moving in. And that wasn't even that long ago and probably I'll say that long ago it's probably like maybe 10 yeah about 10 11 yeah. years ago anything so, that happened in 2000s feels like yesterday to me and then people yeah. remind me that's actually 20 years ago now but yeah it, it was like it was more too, it feels like yesterday but <laughs> I suppose it's a good I suppose it's a sign though of how far we've come where like now if anyone said to me you know they're suffering from stress or they just they just need time or they're just not managing Hey, you know, be open about it. And I would encourage you, yeah. you know, if you need to be signed off from work, signed off from work. I think there's always this, um, I think it just goes back to school days. It's going to be on your record. It's going to be on your record yeah. that you were signed off with stress, yeah. which is absolutely just ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's true. I, and I think there's still some of that now. I know I certainly felt it when I had to sign off as well, kind of similar reasons um, to what you said. And um, also felt I felt like a fraud, um Mm. and it's and even and that's knowing what I know now with the tools that we've mentioned having progressed I still felt like I was almost cheating my work and it's like no and then I've got multiple people and myself telling myself but you need this or you you know you're you're gonna have a breakdown like don't be silly do it and it took and I remember just making the call to book an appointment with the GP it was like it took me I think the day that I was going to do it, I couldn't do it. And it took me until the next day to get up the guts to do it. And I'm like, but, but I mean, I guess the important thing is that I did do it, but even that was still that. I think it's that for me personally, I don't know how other people feel about it, but for me personally, it's that feeling of 
knowing that I'm going to disappoint people that rely on me. Um, but sometimes I think if you look at it from a different perspective, which is you're not that important. People can no, get no, no, things no. down without... No, but if you think about it, I, I read I read this quote. Oh, you mean in a lack on a work basis? I, I always say, not, you know, like, they don't... They don't there's some, there's other people there who can do your job. Yeah, but it's it, also but it's uh, there was a, a quote that I read. I don't know where it was from, but it kind of encapsulated what I'm trying to say, which I'm saying badly. Which was, it's you're more important that than you think, but not as important as you think. And I think what it meant was to me, it meant you know the world will still go on without you if yeah. you need to take a break. You know, not everything is always about you. Some things, p- things are about someone else, but yes, you know, but you are partly, you need to give yourself, I guess, um, more leniency and you give, you need to give yourself more, more respect and more importance than you probably do. So that's why I thought that saying, I thought it was just really good because it is, you're more important than you think, but not as important as you like, people can manage without you, you know, and you, it's, it wasn't built on your back. It's not. No, but I think it, it goes back to this thing. You don't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. And it's ridiculous that you that you would think. I'm not saying you personally, but it's ridiculous that you would think that. Take recognizing that you need to take a step back and take time for yourself means that you're letting someone down. Whereas yeah. really, by not doing that, the only person that you're letting down is you. Yeah. By it's not like everybody giving else, yeah. that time. It's like yeah. that's a really good point. Actually, you're thinking about everybody else and how it affects everybody else, but not. Mm it's almost like you're prioritizing everybody else over yourself yeah actually which is quite sad it's it's sad but it's it's fascinating the things we will tell ourselves mm. you know that you know we, we, we can't we can't take this break because it, it, it's going to look bad or I just need to get through this one day I'll just need to get through this one day and it will yeah. be fine and really no it's not going to be fine you need yeah. to you need to stop you need to be still you need to be I've said it before, you like you need to be kind to yourself. Mm. And being kind to yourself, it could be something as simple as just saying, you know, I used to joke about where well, everyone's joked about, I need a duvet day. And sometimes yeah. a duvet day, it's just like, you just need a day. You yeah, need a day. it's true. It's true. It is true. And, and yeah, I don't, it, yeah, sometimes you do, you just need to switch off. You just need a day mm. where you do nothing. And that's really, and I think there's also an expectation, I think, where, if you do take time off and things like that, you're at home, you're like, well, I need to do something. I'm at home doing nothing. No, no, you just need to do nothing. Do do nothing and don't feel guilty about doing nothing. And that's yeah. so hard to do. Um, but you know what? I'm working on it. <laughs> I, I think, think we're, we're all working on it. But I, I think, as you said, the, lot, the, the, the first or well, one of the hurdles is removing the guilt. Yeah. yeah that's attached sure. to it. For sure. I think, um, funnily enough, we're having this conversation. I was actually speaking to one of my friends this morning and that was one of the things that came up because um, he noticed that my tone changed when I was talking about something in particular. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I think, you know how you have your New Year's resolutions? I didn't really have one. didn't think of it. And then I realised, you know, I think what I'd like for this year, not necessarily resolution, but what I'd really like to do this year is learn to self-care appropriately. Mm. learn to just understand myself more and what I need and uh, be more forgiving about it. Um, you know, not making excuses for me not getting stuff done. Absolutely. Do the things that you need to do, honor your commitments and do all of that. But um, 
I think I developed this habit over the years of pushing myself to the back. And it's kind of like, no, you can be at the forefront with everything else that you need to do. So it's, it's more like that's nothing big, but just kind of making small changes and not also, and just trusting that you need it and not, and like you said, like working on leaving that guilt behind. Cause you know, sometimes you do just need to go out for a walk and in the middle of the day for no reason at all. And just look at the sky and people think you're a weirdo because you're literally walking around (laughs) looking at the sky because it's so pretty. And I do do that. But it's nice. Like, That's lovely. You're recognising the good things that are out there. And I'm going to do my amateur um, psychiatry bit. (laughs) I think, (laughs) you know, what you were talking about, about self-care and recognising when you need to be kind and not retreating it probably goes back to what you were saying earlier in the beginning of this conversation about how you were you know as a child and as a teenager you would retreat to your room and just immerse yourself in other worlds yeah yeah not even not even in my room by the way I used to walk from school to my house with my nose in the book I was like one day you're gonna get run over and I was like and I I still have that ability I still have that ability I you know what when you walk a route a thousand times you don't need to look where you're going I know you, you are know not where it's, you're going. it's muscle memory it's muscle yeah, memory exactly. you do it on autopilot just read your book I mean why would I waste <laughs> a second when I of reading I could be reading <laughs> so let's talk about Patricia Marquez the writer because you're Isabel, uh, Inspector Isabel Reese books, and I pronounce it Reese. How do you pronounce it in Portuguese? Because I think it, I think it needs to be heard properly. Okay, I'll say her full time. So it's Inspector Isabel Reis. See, I, oh, yeah. I can't say that. I'm so much better. <laughs> I say Reese. I'm always talking in English anyway, so I say I say Reese. Before I ask you about the Colors of Death, because the Colors of Death has been, which is your first um, novel in the Inspector Reese series. It's been, if they had to categorise it, they couldn't pull it firmly on one shelf. I, mean, they, I, I think it belongs in crime, but it's been described as speculative fiction. Did you ever feel, before we before we talk about the books, did you ever feel there was an expectation for, on you to write a different kind of book, to write in a different genre because of your heritage? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, I think... But funnily enough, again, I think that also has to do with my privilege as a white-facing author. So because people don't automatically assume, uh, you know, they don't understand my heritage, there's no expectation for me to write um, those really, (laughs) this is going to sound so bad the way I'm going to say this, but those really deep literary novels. Okay. It doesn't sound bad. I know. Exactly okay, good. What you mean. Uh, so you know, I could, I had absolutely zero expectations about what I wanted to write. I could, I think, I could, I could get away with writing whatever I want. Um, I don't have any expectations of me that can't say the same for everybody else from certain demographics, mm. for sure. Um, so no expectations, and also I think, obviously, I so I wrote the I wrote the Colors of Death as part of the as part of the novel that I had to write for my MA so I guess from that perspective it had to be crime it had to have a crime element but that's only because that was the MA that I was doing it was an MA in crime writing I mean writing a crime novel um so it had to be crime um but they didn't say it couldn't be anything else (laughs) so so that's where the uh speculative element came in so 
No, I never felt that I had that I was being pushed into anything in particular or that there was an expectation of me to although you do get but I think every writer gets this no matter what you always have that family member or that friend that all of a sudden (laughs) are like oh my god you should write my biography why would you think that why would you think that no I don't want to write your biography I don't even write I don't I don't even write non-fiction which, by the way, most of them don't know. Don't know that this is different or a separate genre for that. I know this is going off on a slight tangent, and um, but it reminds me of when, with me being a being a, a lawyer, solicitor, whatever. Automatically, you're the public speaker in the family, and you start getting requests for. I've done eulogies. I've done wedding receptions. <laughs> speeches <laughs> I've written read, I've written speeches for other like friends no mothers of my friends oh my god you've written, you've written you, speeches yes you become the go-to and I always say to them there's a big there's a big massive difference between me doing a submission to a single judge or doing a closing speech to a jury which is 12 people there's a big difference in doing that and doing a eulogy before a massive congregation or doing you know a speech or any anything it's a there's a big difference so it just reminded me of that oh, it makes only, me laugh yeah though. the only thing that I got that's close to that that expectation that comes from but it's different though that comes not because of like what I studied or anything it comes more because I'm basically the first of our I, I guess because I'm Portuguese speaking and I can read and write Portuguese. I mean, we're not going to talk about the, the level of my written Portuguese, but I can read and write it. Um, you know, it. you'll get it. You'll understand. We'll understand each other. The message will get across. It's fine. Um, but so because of that, I'm the go-to translator. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah, I'm the go-to translator for anything that needs to, like, emails um, that, you know, need to be sent by certain family members on a professional capacity or, <laughs> oh, just write this letter or you know, I need help with the CV or da, da, da. I'm the person. I'm the person. <laughs> you speak English too. Please stop it. Stop you it. speak English too. <laughs> but, you know, okay. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's where, I, but I've never been out. Oh my God, I could never. A speech. <gasps> oh yeah. Well yeah. done. You're multi-talented. You've got all this experience. It's crazy. I love it. I'm too nice. The worst one though is when your parents offer your services to someone else. That's the best one. When your parents offer it for you and you're like, really? Really? And now you have to do it because otherwise your parent loses face. I've had that. I've had that. <laughs> anyway. Magic tangents. <laughs> Tangents are fun. Back to you and it's Detective Inspector Reese. So you said you were writing it as part of the part of your MA, which was a crime writing MA, but didn't no one said you couldn't write speculative fiction. Exactly. How did you respond to and yes, we all you will tell us about your series, but how did you respond when people wasn't sure where to place your book? Uh to be honest, or, I I kind of saw it coming. I, I, it wasn't mm. really unexpected for that. The only thing I wasn't expecting was that it would be called speculative because that sounds so fancy. I thought they would just call it, <laughs> I don't know, uh, a sci-fi slash crime or crime slash, yeah. well, probably more likely to be a crime slash sci-fi if you wanted to look at it that way. Um, 
So uh, I was also surprised to find that there was a whole genre that was called speculative crime. Like, obviously, I knew the books that straddled both, but I didn't. Yeah. I, I guess I just didn't think about it. It just didn't occur to me because I just read what I read. I don't really look at. And you know, you're right. What you're right. You told the stories you want to tell. You're not thinking yeah. at the time. You're not thinking about where it fits. Exactly. I think. But when we were doing the MA and then they start talking about, you know, how your book needs to be marketed and da da da, and then you kind of start to see they have to fall into certain brackets. And mine is very, it's it's quite niche. Um, so the only thing that I had was I knew that because it straddled both, um, I thought it would impact, I guess, its success in either genre because it's not one or the other. And I think that would have been being one or the other probably would have made it easier in terms of marketing and probably in terms of sales. Um, yeah. I think I, it does complicate, not complicate things, but I think it's not an easy, it's not as easy as sell, not to say that novels are easy sells regardless, but um, I think it is easier when you can put it in one or the other. So I think that that has maybe held back the potential of the book a little bit, or maybe it hasn't. Um, who knows? Um, it hasn't. It hasn't held back your writing of, of further books. No, and it didn't hold my publisher back either in investing uh, in more books. Yeah. So you know, so I guess it's really not not that bad of a thing. Um, but then again, I think uh, with the colors of death in the series, um, it is very procedural. So I think that's why there is a confidence in still in it doing. I suppose, decently enough in, in the yeah. crime fiction world, because you could argue that it isn't crime. It doesn't belong in crime genre because, you know, it's got elements of sci-fi, but really, if you read the book, it's, it's a case. They're following the case. They're investigating the case. There's dead people. Um, you know, there's, <laughs> so what, what else? What else do you want? <laughs> well, what I want, what I would like, not what I want, what I would like is for you to tell the listeners of the conversation, what, your Inspector Reese series is about. Tell us about the world where the colours of death and the house of silence. And what's the third book called? Oh, um, probably- oh my God. Oh my God. Did I just blank out? Oh my- um, it's called Broken Oats. <laughs> <laughs> I blanked out on my third. I, I blanked out on my third book. That's so bad. Um, Broken Oats. That's the name of the third. Broken Oats is book three, which is out when? It's out this year. Um, yeah, it's out this year. I'm not quite sure at which point now, <laughs> but it's out this year. It's going to be out this year. Okay, so tell the you could tell the listeners what get the world of the world of God. I'll start this again. What am I saying, Patricia? You want me to tell the readers, uh, the, the, not the readers, the listeners uh, about um, okay. right. the Inspector okay. Reese. Yeah. So tell the. So Patricia, tell the listeners of the conversation what The Colours of Death and The House of Silence is about and tell us about the world in which Isabel Reese inhabits. Um, so I should have gotten better with this over time. Um, but basically, The Colours of Death uh, introduces Inspector Reese and her team. Um, it's based on a world that's very adjacent to our own. It's basically the same thing, except to except people, some, well, a small number of, I guess, society, they happen to have uh, powers. 
So um, they're referred to as gifted and they either have a kind of, they either have telekinesis or they've got um, telepathy and they, and then within those two brackets, there are varying degrees of how much they're able to do with that ability. So for instance, some people can only sense, so, so some telepaths can only sense emotions. Uh, others can actually hear people's thoughts. So there's kind of like, well, there is actually literally 10 levels in the book um, and people are classified by what level they are. Um, and same thing with telekinesis. So that's, that's the only thing that stands out that makes it different from our world. And there's some, con some control measures in place uh by the government and it's set in portugal so there's some uh control measures in place by the portuguese government to kind of monitor these individuals because uh people are kind of scared of what they can do uh and how far they could they could go with with, with their powers and that's kind of, that's kind of reflected in in the world in general which kind of opens up in book two but um in book one the colors of death uh we were introduced to inspector isabel Hayes. And she's solving the very odd murder, which isn't immediately apparent as a murder, of someone who basically smashed their heads to bits in a train. <laughs> and uh, so she has to kind of solve what happened there because not everything is as it seems. And um, there's a lot of kind of, I think, pol politicians involved. Uh, and just, not politicians, actually, but politics and... Uh, and I and I think it, it looks a bit as well at how people who are different are treated differently and how they fit in that world. So those are kind of the main themes of, of The Colours of Death. In House of Silence, book two, we already have our team, which is really nice because it feels like we're just carrying on with old friends that we have, I hope, anyway. Uh, and we actually um, ex we expand a little bit on the world. Uh, one of the themes is um, how Isabel, who is also gifted, by the way, um, deals with her own gift. Um, it's um, a big point of contention within her family. It's caused, uh, you know, broken family relationships, um, which is quite sad. Um, but the case focuses on a bit of a darker topic. So we're looking at um, themes of human trafficking and things like that. And um, Isabel has to go in there and save the day. So that's book book two and book three. Is actually set in the UK, um, and I'm currently working on that now, which is interesting because of the the I guess the dynamic of the books changes quite a bit with the difference in location. Because I was so used to writing it in Portugal, I've got everything. It's almost like I've got my whole world built, and now I've gone and changed it. So I've kind of just made life extremely hard for myself. Um, but there are fun things because I'm getting to explore what the world looks like for gifted people in the UK, which is slightly different to gifted people in Portugal. And there's a bit of, no, I wouldn't call it espionage, no. But there's this, you know, there's a few um, UK staples that kind of enter into the book. No James Bond, but kind of kind of UK staples that kind of make their way into, into Broken Oaths. Um, but we open up with basically a bunch of dead people in the Portuguese embassy, which hooray, we love. <laughs> we love. <laughs> Before I move on to our four questions, mm -hmm. what excites you about being an author and what has been your favourite part of this journey? What has been my favourite part? Mm, I guess 
this is gonna maybe this is gonna sound a bit too simplistic, but from the moment I published book one, that was a dream I achieved. So it was one yeah. of my dreams to well, not as we've spoken about, not originally, but obviously as I grew more into my writing, it was definitely something that I dreamt of. And it was a dream achieved. So I think one of the things that really does make me happy is knowing that um, you know, whatever the sales say or don't say, or um, you know, even though I'm not yet, you know, one of those names that you hear often, I will be. I'm joking. Oh, will be. <laughs> I will be. <laughs> uh, but you know, regardless of all of that, I actually achieved a dream, and that's really, really cool. Not everybody gets to say that, and I'm very fortunate to be able to say that. So that's really cool. I have, despite me moaning about networking. Uh, I've gotten to meet some really cool people and made some really <laughs> amazing friends. Uh, you know, as because of this, because it's forced me into situations I wouldn't normally be in. Um, and it always surprises me, sometimes in good ways, sometimes not such good ways, but it's it's one thing that I think it doesn't stay consistent. Um, and I don't think that's going to change going forward. I think um being an author is gonna just continue to put me in situations that I might not have expected and which will be pretty amazing so I think that's one of the best things about being an author uh see so you, you I was a little bit lost for words for a bit and that but that doesn't help on a podcast called a conversation so <laughs> <laughs> so on to the questions even though I feel like you've answered this in a way are you an introvert or extrovert or a hybrid of the two see I would have hands down said I'm an introvert uh, and I still think that, but uh, I'm, I think I'm an introvert who knows how to extrovert when there's a need for it. <laughs> um, you know, but I mean, if I had to say a hundred percent, one or the other, I'm an introvert. I like my space. I like my quiet. I need to recharge a lot from being with people. Mm. And I just, I just like, you know what? I'm one of those people that I can generally say, I really like my own company, not in a big headed way. I just, I, I feel I feel at ease with myself, um, you know, and it's just nice. I love doing things by myself. It's lovely. <laughs> okay, what challenge or experience in your life shaped you the most? Um, I guess we've touched on this too, but I think w- one of the things that did shape me the most was, you know, being the eldest daughter <laughs> to a single mother who immigrated to a completely different country where we did not speak the language um so that's definitely that's definitely shaped me a hundred percent um definitely the eldest daughter a bit oh my god it's like I have my I have children without having children um (laughs) that's exactly what it is I'm the eldest as well and um I mean to the point where my one of my brothers like when it's mother's day he'll always he'll wish me mother's day as well you know what? I need to tell my sister that one. I'll be like, you know what? On Mother's Day, I feel like something's missing here. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, but yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I think has definitely shaped how I am, what I do, how I think. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty, pretty big deal. Um, so yeah, I think that was it. Okay. If you could go back to when you were 25 years old and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Save your money. Save your money. Save it. What are you doing? What are you doing? What did you spend it on? Crazy. To be fair, the majority of it went on books and it went on shoes. But um, 
I think definitely one advice would have been to try and become more financially literate. Um, I think that's something that wasn't immediately, those tools weren't immediately available to me or taught to me as I was growing up, just because, you know, culturally uh, from the socioeconomic background that I'm from, it's just one of those things that, you know, you don't really have. So I think I would have gone back and just said, you know what, be aware of these things, learn what they're about. If you don't want to do them now, great, but at least you'll maybe know how, because then there are so many opportunities I probably could have taken advantage of that I never did. Um, but yeah, that's it. And maybe, and also maybe be a little bit more selfish. I realized that probably me telling myself not to spend all that money sounds like I was, but in other aspects, um, <laughs> uh, in other aspects, I think I probably should have done a lot more things than, um, I did just because I felt bad or that it might inconvenience other people. And so I'd, I'd say that those two things save and be a little more selfish. <laughs> the two S's save the two S's. and Save and yeah. be selfish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and finally, Patricia Marcus, where can listeners of the conversation find you online? Uh, the two, you know what? I'm going to go with the places where I'm most active. So you can find me on Twitter and you can find me on Instagram. I'm way more responsive and active on Instagram though. So, you know, that's probably for the best. Um, but yeah, that's where you can, where you can find me. If you want to say hello, if you want a message, if you want to say I hated your book, please don't do that. Um, yeah, that's that's where you find me. <laughs> and your social media handles, that would be helpful so people can so find you. So it's, uh, <laughs> yes, oh my God. So I'm pretty sure on Twitter it's MarcusP09. And on Instagram it's, um, I think, Patricia MG Author. So that's what I think. Oh my God, did I get that the wrong way around? <laughs> it doesn't matter. We will pull it in the show notes so Fantastic. the listeners know where to find you. <laughs> Patricia Marquez, thank you for being part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Conversation. I'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. Make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss out on the next episode or any bonus episodes. And it would mean a lot if you took a minute to leave a review. You can follow me on social media. My links are on my website, nadinematheson.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email the conversation at nadinematheson.com. See you soon.